Very good. Evening, everybody. So that quotation that you've had a few minutes to look at there, I'll just read it out again. Uh, there are but very few who are capable of comparing and digesting what passes before their eyes at different times and occasions so as to form the whole into a distinct system. But in books, everything is settled for them without the exertion of any considerable diligence or sagacity. For which reason men are wise but with little reflection and good with little self-denial in the business of all times except their own. That's a quotation from Edmund Burke. Most people, when they read through it, ask, is there an English language version available? <laughs> so what I understand them to be saying is that people are really not very good at reading and making political judgments of any soundness or wisdom in relation to their own times. People can give very good reasons as to why the Roman Empire collapsed and things like that that you can read in books about events that happened hundreds of years ago and everything sort of worked out for you. It's a nice neat little package and you can comprehend it and understand it. However, when it comes to contemporary events and, and events during their own lifetime, he says people in general are just not very good at reading those, making sense of them and making any kind of sensible predictions as to what's going to happen. So based on this, we're going to take a view at this whole area of government and politics and systems of government, which is very ancient comes from Plato's Republic where he lists five forms of government and I'm going to talk about those five forms of government. Coming at it from Plato's perspective and coming at it from a philosophical perspective, interestingly enough, gives you an interesting insight into what's going on in today's society and gives us the ability to make a bit better sense of current events. So what I'll do in the first half largely is I will talk through the way Plato described systems of government two and a half thousand years ago. It's all highly relevant to today. And then in the second half, after the break, we'll take some discussion as to the relevance that we see for today in what Plato had to say two and a half thousand years ago. So we'll go on now to a quotation from Plato when he says this. He says, we must perforce acknowledge, I said, that in each of us, there are the same principles and habits that there are in the state. That it is from the individual that the state derives them. Take the quality of passion or spirit. It would be ridiculous to imagine that this quality when found in states is not derived from the individuals who are supposed to possess it. So what he's saying there is that the basis of any state or nation or system of government lies in the individuals who make it up. So he says there, if you say a particular nation has passion or spirit, then you must be saying that the people who make it up have passion or spirit. That's how the nation becomes passionate. It gets it from the individuals who make it up. If you say that a particular country, for example, is lawless and has no respect for law and order, then you are, if you take Plato's model, saying that the people are in that state, are in themselves lawless. There's no other way that the state can become lawless. That's the model which he employs, and he elaborates it again in the next quotation. He says, do you know, I said, that governments vary as the dispositions of men vary, and that there must be 
as many of the one, in other words, uh, systems of government, as there are of the other. In other words, there's many types of systems of government as there are types of people. Or do you suppose that states spring from oak and rock and not from the human natures which are in them and, as it were, turn the scale and draw other things after them? So, again, he's saying, if you want to look for explanations as to why countries are as they are, you look to the people who make up those countries. That's the basis of the whole analysis that he puts forward in the Republic, where he lists these five forms of government which we're going to talk about. And what I'm going to do in the first half is I'm going to put up the, these slides which basically tell you what he says in the Republic. For the most part, they're quotations taken straight from the Republic. I've adjusted them slightly to get them shorter. And it's all material taken from Book 8 of the Republic. I had to abbreviate it down quite a bit, just to give you a complete overview of everything that's in Book 8 of the Republic and the five forms of government. There's a few interesting strands run through it as well, which we can pick up on as we go through the five of them. And then everything I put up on here, I'm going to give to you in a handout at the intervals. So you can have a chance to look at it, refresh your mind as to what he actually said, and then we can have a discussion in the second half. Everything that's up here, you'll have all of that, and we can discuss what he actually said. So, as I said, there are mostly quotations from the Republic, unless I say otherwise, it's normally indicated on the slide. So I'll just talk through now these five forms of government. He says there are five, but just to make a point, again, the kernel of it is, if you want to understand why a country is as it is, you look to the people. Essentially, if you want to know why Ireland is as it is, really, he's saying, you'd look to yourself. That's the closest place you can look to find out why Ireland is as it is. Now, if that's too painful, we'll just move on. <laughs> I'm giving here a quick summary. It's my summary. I'm systematizing what Plato says in the Republic, and I have it summarized on this diagram here. And he presents a very, very simple model of a person. And he says, in each person, there are three aspects. There is the human being, which he associates with reason and all of the great human qualities, uh, wisdom, justice, temperance, courage. I've picked reason there, but Plato, real human qualities, what he calls the virtues, they call the Platonic virtues, are wisdom, justice, temperance, and courage. And a person is most a human being when they possess all of those qualities in full measure. So that's the human aspect, and that's in each of us. There's also a passionate aspect, which he calls the lion, and it is the spirit, it gets things done, it gets things moving, but it can also overdo things and it can be cruel. So that's the lion, and then there's a thing which he calls the monster, which is selfish desire or appetite. And in each person you will always have all three, he says. And you'll always have the human aspect, you'll always have the lion, you'll always have the monster. It's just a question of getting them in balance. And ideally, you want the human bit ruling. On the next section of that slide, you see there's five forms of government. I've given you the names there, but I'm going to explain all that in a few minutes. So I'm just, for the moment, I'm just going to call them one, two, three, four, and five, counting from left to right. And in the first one, you've got your ideal setup. You've got reason on top, the human qualities rule. Next is passion. So if you need a bit of action, it's there, but it serves reason. And then appetite and desire, which you need, and uh, have to be indulged in measure, they're in third place, subject to the other two. 
after that first one, which is the best one, reason isn't dominant anymore. And in the next two, this passionate element starts to dominate. And reason moves down to second place, then down to third place. See the way it goes? See the way reason moves down, down. And then in the last two, even passion doesn't rule. In the last two, it's this desirous, appetitive aspect of the person that starts to rule. And reason is in second place, and then in third place. It is a descent from aristocracy, which is the best one, and timocracy, or down to tyranny, which is the worst one, according to Plato. Now, just a few things about these. Firstly, the way he uses these words and the way we use them today are very different. So when he says aristocracy, it shouldn't have the connotations that aristocracy normally has for us. We think of British aristocracy, hollow the guys riding on horses, talking in very strange accents, and thinking that they're better than everybody else. For Plato, an aristocracy had to be the best people. They had to be good in themselves. And if thinking yourself to be the best wasn't sufficient. So aristocracy is a common word we've come across. And democracy, here as he speaks about it, is a very, very pure form of democracy in which people have a say in absolutely everything. The Athenians did try to work that kind of a system. Even if there was a military decision to be made in Athens, basically they tried to parade everybody up to the Panix, into the assembly. 20,000, 30,000 people could be there trying to decide on a military matter. It was very, very difficult and not a great system, really, in practice, but they tried to operate it. And when Plato talks about democracy, he means a very pure form of democracy. And typically, when you look around you, you'll find that mostly you get mixtures of these. Very, very seldom you get any of them pure. And normally they're mixed with the one that's on either side of them. So, you know, democracy here will tend to be mixed with oligarchy, which I'll explain later, and maybe with a bit of tyranny thrown in, which we'll also describe later on. And then timocracy and oligarchy, I'll explain those as we come to them. He made up the word timocracy, really, in, to fill out the, the model in the Republic. It's a, it's a made up word. So, anyway, that's the way it works. Here you have these three aspects of the human being. And as their balance changes, the system of government changes, the nation changes. That's the model which he works, and that's the way it works. And having presented this lecture quite a few times, I'm happier and happier each time. It's a pretty good system. And I'm reasonably happy that what he says is actually spot on. So I'm going to go through the five of them now pretty quickly. And in each case, I'm going to ask five questions. In each, the case of each system of government, I'm going to ask, what is it? How is it formed? What kind of person constitutes it? How does that person arise? And then I just have a quick look at history, of which I have just about zero knowledge, and see if there's any periods of history which would remind us of that system of government. So I'm going to deal with those five aspects of each of the forms of government. And then, as I said, the handout which I'll give you at the break, you'll have copies of everything I put up on the slides. Now. Aristocracy. As I said earlier, this is not just about people who think they're better than everybody else. That's not what he means by aristocracy. It's a very different meaning. He means it literally the way the Greeks would have meant it. Aristos is the best. That's what the word aristos means. And krateo is to rule over. Uh, so this is ruled by the best, and he means the best. And he describes it as follows. Until philosophers are kings. Oh, the kings and princes of this world have the spirit and power of philosophy and political greatness and wisdom meet in one, and those commoner natures who pursue either to the exclusion of the other 
are compelled to stand aside. Cities will never have rest from their evils, nor the human race either. So aristocracy is this famous philosopher kings, uh, described by Plato in the Republic, and it's, people normally refer to this as the philosopher kings. And it's important, though, to realize that, again, when he says philosophers, he doesn't mean people with a degree in philosophy or people who studied philosophy for a long time and never quite mastered it. He means people who, in the true sense of the Greek words, they have this philos sophos. The philos meaning the love and the sophos meaning wisdom. These are people who really love wisdom. They love wisdom above all else. That becomes clear as we go on because as we go on, you find there's plenty of other things you can love and plenty of other things that people do love. These people, they really do love wisdom. And they love of wisdom and the political greatness meet in one person. And there you have the person who really is the best person to rule. And he says that this is the basis of his aristocracy. This is his highest form of government. How do you form it? Well, he wonders, will it ever exist or did it ever exist? And he says this, it is laid up as a pattern in heaven, which he who desires may behold, and beholding may take up his abode there. But whether such a city exists or ever will exist is no matter, for he will live after the manner of that city, having nothing to do with any other. And I've put another note there that all possessions are held in common in this city. And that's not an enforced holding in common. They hold their possessions in common because they have no particular desire to own particular things. They're very happy to allow them to be shared. So, as I said, he really wonders, did it ever exist or will it ever exist? But he does say that any person can live after the manner of this highest city because you yourself can be ruled by virtue and have your own inner being in balance and in harmony. And then you live after the manner of that city. You can be surrounded by any one of the other forms of government, but you can live after the manner of that city. But that's how it's formed. The kind of person who constitutes it. So you have an aristocracy because the people are aristocratic. That's the way he puts it time and time again with the other forms of government as well. So what kind of a person is this? Love of wisdom prevails over the love of honor and status and over the love of wealth and pleasure. So love of wisdom is the first love and always remains so. It's put above love of ambition, love of status, love of money, love of pleasure. Love of wisdom is uppermost. And then he sets in order his own inner life and is his own master and his own law and at peace with himself. He has become one entirely temperate and perfectly adjusted nature. So that's the sort of person who is entirely at peace with himself, this entire inner balance and harmony. How do you create such a person? How does he arise? It's all to do with education and a huge theme of the Republic. And we're talking about one book here. There's ten books in the Republic and a huge theme of it. The biggest theme of the Republic is education. And the key to creating a person of this kind is education, good education, including physical education. And he says, rhythm and harmony find their way, find their way into the inward places of the soul. That should be T-H-E-I-R. 
into the inward places of the soul, imparting grace and making the soul of him who is rightly educated graceful. And he also says the philosophical part of human nature will be gentle and moderate, and the spirited part gives him courage. So this is an education based on what he calls music, but he uses music in the broadest sense to include philosophy and literature. And these civilizing influences harmonize and bring grace to the soul of the person. And then he doesn't want these people just to be ivory-towered philosophers who sit around being very still and peaceful all the time but don't get anything done. And so he insists that there's another aspect to their education which he calls gymnastic, but the idea of it is to bring a physical training, to bring about a spirited human being as well as a peaceful, graceful, still and inwardly harmonious human being. So they have the harmony of the soul, but they also have the ability to act. And particularly in his rulers, obviously that's very important. So it would not be satisfactory for Plato just to have people who are going to sit around and philosophize all day. No time for that. So this is the balanced education which he gives them and which produces these aristocratic people. Now he's already said in the earlier quote, he wonders, could it ever even exist? And he says it doesn't matter. He says it's no matter. Looking back at history, the best I could do is here. Gibbon, in his decline and fall of the Roman Empire, he mentions the age of the Antonines, which would be the second century AD in Rome. And there were two rulers there, Titus Antoninus Pius and his adopted son Marcus Aurelius. And the whole thing was set up by the Emperor Hadrian. And Marcus Aurelius, in particular, you can still read because his book, Meditations, Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, is still in print. You can buy it in Penguin Books. And it's very beautiful, very simple, very practical philosophy. Uh, he wrote it, and we're sure that he tried to live by it as well. So here was a man who wrote philosophy and who had tried to live by the philosophy which he himself uh, preached. And you can certainly say that anyone who wrote that and who tried to live by it, as you read it in the meditations was an extraordinary person and he was Roman Emperor and his predecessor Antoninus Pius who was his adoptive father is said by Gibbon that their united reigns are possibly the only period of history in which the happiness of a great people was the sole object of government. So that's very high praise from Gibbon, a very strong statement that he makes. He said, the only period in history in which the happiness of a great people was the sole object of government. As far as Gibbon was concerned, the only question these men asked was, what is the best thing we can do for the happiness of the Roman people? That was their only interest and concern. Also, Gibbon says that the people were governed by absolute power under the guidance of virtue and wisdom. And the Roman emperors did have absolute power, of course under the guidance of virtue and wisdom. If you saw that film Gladiator, at the start of that film, the Roman emperor is up fighting on the Danube. That emperor is, that's Marcus Aurelius, is the emperor. And his son comes into it. I'm going to talk about his son later on. In that movie, his son actually kills the father. That apparently didn't happen. Good story, good Hollywood stuff, but apparently didn't happen like that. The son, whose name was Commodus, he mightn't have killed the father, but he certainly made up for it in other ways, because he killed an awful lot of other people. And I'll talk about him a bit later. But that was Marcus Aurelius. Was, was it Richard Harris played Marcus Aurelius? 
Richard Harris played the Maxerius, and Joachim Phoenix played the awful, awful, awful Commodus, his son. And the very interesting thing was, and there's another thread that runs through the Republic, you have this wisest of wise emperors whose son is, again, an emperor, but one of the worst emperors that Rome ever produced, an awful fellow. And there's a sort of bit of a thread of that running through the Republic as well, and we'll pick up on it later on. So that's it. That's the aristocracy, and unfortunately, it doesn't stay like that. Plato says, I, I'm paraphrasing him, he says, really, nothing lasts forever in this world. Nice and all as it is, it will run down, and it runs down to a thing called timocracy. I'll tell you what it means. You've got the crateo in there again, the crass, crass crateo bit is to do with ruling. And this time, instead of ruled by the aristos, who's the best, this is ruled by timos. Uh, timos is honor honor, respect, and it's men of honor who run this place. They're living the best, they're men of honor, and they love honor. Like Henry V, is Henry V? If it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. And that's what these people are like. They love honor. They're hugely ambitious for honor, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. That's another Shakespeare quotation. The spirit of contention and ambition prevails, and they are not ruled by philosophers, but by passionate and less complex characters who are by nature fitted for war rather than peace. They also have a fierce secret longing for gold and silver, and they give great honor to their rulers. So this is a different system entirely. And very military, it tends to be very military. The virtues are the military virtues. For example, the, the obedience to rulers. Everyone knows in a military situation, in an army, you follow orders. And in this state, you respect your rulers and you follow orders. And you're not the ruler, so nobody asks your opinion, so you follow orders. That's the way it works. And what they prize above all is achievement, honor, ambition, bravery, and courage. But they prize it above wisdom. Wisdom has now moved down into second place, and these guys will prize honor, ambition, valor, and courage more than wisdom. That changes everything. Also, sneaking into the background here, which is going to be their downfall, is this secret love of gold and silver. So one side of them is saying that honor is the most important thing, but at the back of their mind is this hankering after material wealth. Now that takes over as this proceeds. But at this stage, it's just in the back of their mind. It gets to be a serious problem. How is it formed? Every system you're going to see from now on is formed out of the previous one. So you look back to the previous one, and there's some little flaw in it, and that creates the next one down. Now, the timocracy is formed. It says, this begins in begetting children out of season. So that is <laughs> the last thing you'd expect. There's a very, very confusing page of text in the Republic where he explains all this. I've read it a few times. I don't understand it. There's a book by a guy called Alan called Nuptial Arithmetic where he takes this little paragraph out of the Republic and he writes a whole book to explain it. And I've read the book and I still don't understand it. So he gets into this very confusing area of numerology. Best to just skip to the bottom line, which is... The offspring are not well-born or fortunate. 
and they neglect first music and then gymnastic. And here's the problem. Basically, they neglect education. For some reason, because of their birth, because of the kind of people they are, they don't value education, then they neglect it. First music, then gymnastic. Remember, by music, he means the whole span of the realm of the muses, um, including philosophy, literature, the whole lot. Uh, they begin to neglect education, and hence the young will be less cultivated. Love of wealth grows up and contends against love of virtue. They agree to private ownership of land, and so they make slaves of their subjects. Now, there's a huge economic theme runs through the Republic as well, and this whole business of private ownership of land and the status of slavery is in there as a thread. We won't get into any of these apart from to draw your attention to the fact that it's there. So, basically, they neglect education and love of wisdom and virtue are no longer their first love. They put other things ahead of it. And that's basically a consequence of their lack of education because they need to be educated and it takes quite an education so that you will value wisdom and virtue above all else. And as their education becomes weaker and weaker, well, the values start to decline. That's what happens to them. So, what kind of person? Now, again, to emphasize, this is the center of the whole thing. This is what creates the democracy. They've got people like this. This is what they're like. The passionate element rules in him. In other words, the lion. They're self-assertive, not cultivated, but a friend of culture. So not cultivated, but a friend of culture. A good listener, but no speaker. Rough with slaves, courteous to free men. A lover of power and honor, and he claims power not because of eloquence, but because he is a soldier. And a big question as we go through this is, what sort of people will this nation respect? And the sort of people that will be respected in the timocracy are not people who can speak. They're suspicious of people who talk too much. And most people with a military background are suspicious of people who talk too much. They leave the talking to the politicians, we get things done. His claim to rule is because he's a soldier and he has done great service to his country. So he'll simply say, I won this battle. I led my troops back safely over this dangerous mountain pass through snow. And I got all my horses and all my troops back. I repelled the barbarians for five years at such and such a frontier. This is what I've done for my country. I deserve to rule. And in that nation, they'll say, yes, you're right. This is what we respect, and you will rule. That's what they look up to. And that's what they all aspire to. Great military achievement, great service, great dedication, great courage. But there's always a downside, and they can be very cruel, extremely cruel, utterly ruthless and heartless to their friends and to their enemies. How does he arise? Now, there's another thread runs through this, which is he arises out of the aristocrat. Somehow, out of the aristocratic system, you get this timocratic system. And from now on, every time we encounter a decline, the father gets blamed. You're going to see this time and time again. And on the first line here, the son of a brave father who dwells in an ill-governed city. So his father is in an aristocratic setup in an ill-governed city. He declines its honors and offices and avoids its lawsuits, and he's ready to waive his rights in order to escape trouble. His father has many detractors, and he, which is the son, 
is drawn between reason passion, and passion and desire. He gives up the kingdom which is within him to the middle principle of contentiousness and passion. So, just to talk you through this a bit, he's in an aristocracy, he sees his father, a man of wisdom, a man of reason, but if the father is owed money, then he, he doesn't need to recover. He doesn't haul the guy into court, go through all that unseemly business, accusation, counter-accusation. He waves the money he's owed. He says he can keep it. I don't need it anyway. The father sees that there's positions of power available in the city. He doesn't go chasing after them. Father's attitude probably is, well, there's plenty of other good people who fill those positions. But the son is watching all this, and firstly, the guy who owes him money, for example, is going to be going around saying, you know, I owe that guy a thousand drachma. Haven't heard from him, doesn't even ask me for it. You know, if you're stuck for a thousand drachma, you just go and borrow it off him. You'll never have to pay it back. Big joke. Maybe his family are going around saying, you know, he doesn't bring much credit on his family by the positions of power that he holds. In fact, he never even goes and seeks after these positions of power. You know, well, we're not as important as the other people because of this. So he has these detractors. And this bothers the son. You know, here's his father who pursues virtue, pursues wisdom, but people are laughing at him. So he thinks to himself, well, I don't want that to happen to me. The price he's paid for pursuing virtue and pursuing wisdom is people look down on him. I don't want that to happen to me. So I'll make sure I'm always respected. I'm going to make up for this. I'm going to make sure I'm always respected. I will achieve and I will seek office so that I can distinguish myself. I will seek high office so that I can serve my country and be famous for serving my country. But what happened to my father is not going to happen to me. And so, as he puts it, he gives up the kingdom which is within him, in other words, his soul, to the middle principle of contentiousness and passion. So inside himself, instead of being ruled anymore by virtue, justice, and wisdom, he is ruled now by love of honor and the contentiousness, and he'll fight for that honor. And he'll bend the rules a bit for that honor. You know, justice could come second. Justice could take second place in certain situations. That's how this timocratic chap arises. And as I said, the thread here, father to blame. And the extent to which he's to blame is another matter. But certainly, the son didn't understand what he was up to. However well motivated the father was, the son didn't understand what he was up to. Historical overtones. I'm very much reminded of the Spartans. I'll talk to you a bit about them. They were a race of, of, of people, a nation of people, who were constantly at war with the Athenians. Plato would have known them well, Socrates would have known them well. And they eventually overran Athens after a ruinous 30-year war. But they were a very, very military people. They lived a few hundred miles from Athens down on the Peloponnese. And young men, for example, would be taken away from their parents at a very, very early age and put into military camps. And they grew up in these military camps and they received military training from their youth upwards and a r very rough, cruel military training. Women, too, were given military training so they would be fit and able-bodied to bear good, strong Spartan children. And the children were inspected at birth and shortly afterwards. And if the children didn't look as if they were going to turn into good, strong Spartan citizens, they were exposed on the mountainside. They were not allowed to survive. The injunction of a, a mother when her son went off to battle 
her son was going off to, to, to battle, she would say to him, come back with your shield or on it. Now, if you came back with your shield, you were victorious. If you came back on your shield, it was because you were dead. So you were either victorious and distinguished or you were dead. And that's what was the good wishes of the mother to their children as they were heading off into battle. None of these tearful scenes that you see in American Air Force bases as the guys are going off to the Gulf, none of that stuff. Come back with your shield or on it. And the Spartan tradition was to fight to the death. They would never, ever surrender the field. Spartan prisoners were a very, very rare thing because the Spartans would not allow themselves to be taken prisoner. The famous defense at Thermopylae for Greece and Rome who bravely stood 300 men and three men, they were Spartans, led by a guy called Leonidas, the guy the chocolates are named after. He was a Spartan and he defended that pass at Thermopylae with, according to Herodotus, a million Persians on the other side of the pass. There was no hope. All he was going to do was hold them up and the only question there was how many Persians were they going to be able to kill before they themselves were massacred. And that again was the Spartan tradition. And the story, according to Herodotus, also is that when they finally saw that there was absolutely no hope, the Spartans sent away all their allies. They said, you can go home. This is for Spartans. They took up their position in the pass and they defended it to the very last man. And that is their tradition. It can sound magnificent. The downside of it is it's very cruel. But it, it can be magnificent. And what's most important to them is honor and achievement and victory. Another reminder of it is the way Gibbon talks about the Goths. The Goths get a very bad press. They overran Rome in the end. I mean, the Western Empire finally fell to the Goths. The first non-Roman king was a Goth called Odoacer. That was about 470 AD. But Gibbon says about them that, see, these guys came in full of fire, full of vigor. The Roman Empire had run down terribly. They were soft, they'd fallen in love with wealth, and really all they did, a lot of them, was sit around in their estates or sit around in Rome watching displays in the circuses. And Gibbon says about the Goths that they mended the puny breed of the Romans and restored a manly spirit of freedom. So in spite of the fact that they were rough, they were very rough, but they mended the puny breed of the Romans and restored a manly spirit of freedom. So that's what they're able to bring to the Roman Empire. And they actually did blend quite well. The story was that every Goth wanted to be a Roman, but not every Roman wanted to be a Goth. So they did actually merge quite well in with the Romans. And another thing which Gibbon mentions is the unquestioning obedience which the Goths gave to their hereditary kings. And he says this was a huge secret of their success in the battlefield and in political matters. Because once the king spoke and had made a decision, that was it. Nobody argued, nobody questioned it. And it brought about great unity. But there was no question of dissent, no question of faction. They just followed their rulers, their kings. And again, that's a timocratic feature, a feature which Plato mentions as a feature of the timocracy. And again, the military life, the life of the Goths was an entirely military one. Um, they'd been driven out of their homeland, wherever that happened to be, and, and they wandered, living out a military existence, moving from camp to camp. And they were toughened because of that as well. Gibbon points out that they were so much tougher than the Romans who had gone soft. And a lot of the best Roman soldiers towards the end of the Roman Empire weren't native Romans at all. They were people from the annexed provinces who had that bit of toughness in them so they could actually fight.
So that's the timocracy. The next step down, the middle system, if you like, we call it oligarchy. Again, you have that arc word, which means ruling. And the oligos is the few. This is ruled by a few. The few are the wealthy. It's ruled by the wealthy, but the literal meaning is ruled by the few. It's a government resting on the valuation of property in which the rich have power and the poor are deprived of it. Such a state is not one but two states, the one poor and the other of rich men, living on the same spot and always conspiring against one another. Paupers and destitute people arise, and that's the greatest evil of the oligarchy. So the rich dominate it completely. If you want, the whole setup of British aristocracy, which we talked about earlier on, was really an oligarchy. It was ruled by the rich, total domination by the rich. And even to have a vote, you had to own so much property. And it would have been a feature of Britain and Ireland a few hundred years ago that there was a, a very, quite a serious property qualification before you were allowed to vote. So that is it, but the big problem with it and the seeds of its destruction are that there are now two states living side by side. You look at it, you think, well, this is Ireland, and it's one country, but it's not. It's two. Two nations effectively living side by side, looking at one another with huge suspicion, poor people and rich people, essentially, potentially at war with one another at all times. They call one another us and them. They view one another with suspicion and envy and fear, and they all but each side feels that the other is trying to take advantage of it and trying to do it down. And that's the ultimate ruination of this system because that will ultimately break out into something far more serious and active. And another thing is in oligarchy, for the very first time, it doesn't happen in the other two, but in an oligarchy you can have people who are utterly destitute, who have nothing. They've got no house, they've got no land, they've got no wealth. They simply throw themselves on the mercy of the state. They've got absolutely nothing. That is never allowed to happen in the other two forms of government, but it happens in this one. And it's allowed to happen. And he explains a little bit later on why they allow it to happen. But it is allowed to happen. And he also says how you can stop it from happening. It's actually very simple. So that's what an oligarchy is. How is it formed? Again, you have to look back to the previous system of government. But I told you they had a secret longing for gold and silver. The accumulation of gold in the treasury of private individuals is the ruin of timocracy. They invent new modes of expenditure and rest the laws to allow these. One seeing another grow rich seeks to rival him and the great mass of citizens become lovers of money. The more they think of making a fortune, the less they honor virtue. They honor and look up to the rich man and promote him to high office, and they dishonor the poor man. So the most respected men in this city are the rich. And if you're poor, you're despised. In the previous system of timocracy, accumulation of wealth wasn't allowed, and lavish expenditure wasn't allowed either. Here they begin to allow it because they want to accumulate wealth and they don't want it to be illegal. In Sparta, just to go back to them for a second, you couldn't have gold or silver in your house. It weren't allowed. Um, so they started keeping it abroad in foreign banks in places like Corinth. You may sound a little bit familiar, but anyway, that's what they got up to. 
But in an oligarchy, they say, look, like, what's wrong with money? What's wrong with having gold in your house? I want gold in my house. I like gold. And they allow it, and they allow the expenditure and the lifestyle that goes with it. An interesting thing about them is, though, that they're not big into spending money. They're only big into accumulating it. This changes as we go on, but these guys just want to hold it. And again, in the previous state, the guy most likely to rule, the person most likely to rule, was the soldier who had a great achievement. Here, I mean, okay, he's a soldier, he's a great achievement, but they look up more to the rich man. And so they're more likely, far, far, far more likely, to allow the rich man to rule over them. That's what they respect. The kind of person who makes it up, and again, to emphasize, this is, as far as Plato's concerned, the key to the whole thing. Oligarchies are made out of oligarchic people. Now, supreme value is set upon wealth. They're thrifty and laborious, and he only satisfies his necessary appetites and confines himself to them. His other desires he subdues under the idea that they are unprofitable. He is a shabby fellow who saves something out of everything, and a hoarder. He is not a man of culture, and so the drone-like desires of the pauper and the rogue are found in him. He coerces his bad passions by an enforced virtue, not taming them by reason. He will be two men, not one. I'll just talk you through that a bit. This guy loves money, loves wealth. That's the most important thing. He also realizes that there are desires in him which will cause him to spend money. And everyone knows if you let desires run riot, you know, high lifestyle, your money's gone before you know where you are. And that bothers him. So he keeps all those desires in check because he wants to hold on to the money. He represses those desires. Not because he thinks they're bad, not because he thinks they're unreasonable, but because they will lead to the expenditure of all his wealth. He doesn't want that. He wants to hold on to it. So he restrains all these desires which would involve expenditure of money, keeps them under control just because he wants to hold on to the money. He says he's not cultured, and he's two men, not one man. So on one hand, there's a desire to accumulate money, money, money. On the other hand, there's a, a desire to spend it and enjoy himself, but he keeps that in check. And so these two things are fighting in him all the time. He's got these suppressed desires, and they're always there. And the, the Plato puts that he's two men, not one. That's the sort of person he is. How does he arise? Well, poor old father gets the blame again. And the father's in the timocracy. So the father's there in the timocracy, a man of honor, of course. What would he be doing in a timocracy if he wasn't? Now, he sees his father lose all that he has in the timocracy. And his fear has taught him to drive ambition and passion from his bosom's throne. And Plato explains actually how the father might lose everything in the timocracy. He'd be a very honorable man, but maybe there's some fraud perpetrated against him. Maybe there's a political conspiracy and one minute he's in power, next minute because of the political conspiracy he's out and he's got nothing and he loses everything. Some machination within the timocracy causes him to lose everything. And of course the son, he loses everything. The family's destitute, so humbled by poverty, the son takes to money-making, and by mean and miserly savings and hard work, he gets a fortune together. He sets up desire and greed as the king of his soul and makes reason and spirit into its slaves. He allows reason to think only of how lesser sums can be turned into larger ones, 
and his ambition is only for the possession of wealth. So he sees the father who's been such a good servant to the state, so valiant, so courageous, and he's lost everything. And he thinks to himself, valor and honor don't work. There's only one way to be secure. That's get the money at all costs and hold on to it. That makes you safe. And that's what he does. He claws a fortune together and he holds on to it. And as far as he's concerned, only fools put honor or virtue above wealth. And anyone who puts honor or virtue above wealth loses their wealth. So never ever put anything above wealth or you'll lose your wealth. So that's how you get this oligarchic fellow. He sees what has happened to his father and he's determined it's not going to happen to him. He's never going to lose everything. And reason, well, there's only one use for reason. That's to figure out clever ways to make money. There's only one use for passion and spirit and ambition. That's to enact a money-making scheme with vigor and prosecute it with energy. So that's the sort of person he is. And he grows out of the timocratic father, the timocratic family. Historical overtones. I just picked up a couple of quotations from Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, speaking in 1778. He said that America, the unfolding, the independent America, had got two choices, and he gave them as follows. One, it could go for licentious commerce and gambling speculations for a few, with eternal war for the many. Or, restricted commerce, peace, and steady occupations for all. It seems to me, I may be unkind, that America has gone for licentious commerce. It's not restricted commerce, and it's not peace and steady occupations for all. Jefferson wanted them to take the second option, but I think, unfortunately, they took the first. And this love of wealth and the licentious commerce that goes with it is very, very dominant. And uh, in 1816, he said to the American people, we must make our election between economy and liberty or between profusion and servitude. And again, you could make quite a strong case that America has gone the way of profusion and servitude. And in the case of one and two, and in the case of those choices, you're really worth asking yourself what way Ireland has gone and what choices we've made. Have we gone for licentious commerce or have we gone for steady occupations for all? It's a question worth asking. So... This is where Jefferson is really saying to the American people, don't choose oligarchy. Don't choose this oligarchy, wealth-dominated system. And ultimately, again, based on Plato's model, what determines it, of course, is it's the individuals themselves, the people themselves, within themselves, who constitute this. So we better speed this up. Democracy is the next one. Sounds great. We all like democracy, and we use the word democratic as a positive description, you know, very democratic, and we mean it in a positive way. When Plato said very democratic, he didn't really mean it in a positive way. But I emphasize he's talking about a very, very pure system of democracy where essentially the people have a say in just about everything. And he would have seen what was happening in Athens where they tried to be so, so, so democratic. And that is what really put him off the democracy because he saw the downside of it when it's in its purest form. Anyway, what it is, is as follows. The democracy comes into being after the poor have conquered their opponents, slaughtering some and banishing some. 
while to the remainder they give an equal share of freedom and power. Now this revolution doesn't have to be by arms, it can take place just by fear and intimidation. So in the oligarchy, remember, we two states. The rich one was on top, the poor one was underneath. What happens in the democracy is the poor one starts to get the upper hand and pushes the rich one down. So the oligarchs, who still actually have the wealth, I caution, are now, in terms of the ruling, are under the domination much more now of this democratic people. They've flipped over. And the city, as he puts it, is full of freedom and frankness. A man can say and do what he likes. An individual can order his own life as he pleases. There's total disregard of principles, and they promote to honor anyone who says that they are the people's friend. So, in a timocracy, if you want to get elected, you say, I'm a soldier, I've achieved great things. In the oligarchy, you basically, you're wealthy, and that works. In the democracy, you have to say, I'm the friend of the people. I've got your interests at heart. I only want to do what's best for you. It's the only way to get elected in a democracy. You have to say that you're doing what's best for the people. You're the people's friend. How is it formed? It's formed again out of the oligarchy. And he says, the rulers refuse to curtail by law the liberty of undisciplined young men to spend and waste their money. Uh, because they want to buy up their estates or lend money to them and thus increase their own wealth and importance. Men of good family are thus reduced to beggary. I'll just say a little about that. Because we did say that the oligarchy is the first state wherein you have people who have lost everything and are totally destitute. Now, he talks here about people who have wealth, young men in particular who have wealth, and are frittering it away. They're squandering their estates. Everything that they're inherited is being lost. They're gambling, they're spendthrift, etc., etc. And the rich people around them let it happen. They never intervene to stop it. He says they could, but they won't. Why not? Firstly, these idiots can be lent money. Fantastic. We lend them all the money they want. And eventually, they won't be able to repay the debts, and we'll impound their estates. So we're going to get their land. Everything will come to us if we let this happen. So they don't stop these rich young men from frittering everything away. And eventually it all comes back to the wealthy oligarchs, to the few. But there's a bit of a problem here, because these wealthy men who've been accustomed to a high lifestyle and have been accustomed to moving with the powerful people, they're reduced to beggary, and they're full of resentment. And they're educated, they're motivated, they can get things done. They're dangerous people to have hanging around with a grudge against you. So they turn and they lead the mob. They lead the rest of the poor people. They hate and conspire against those who have got their property and they're eager for revolution. And the poor, in the meantime, realize these guys are going around saying that they're the ruling people, that they're the better people. They call themselves aristocrats. They probably do call themselves aristocrats. But they're no better than us. They're absolutely no better than us. And they might be in a citizen army fighting alongside these guys. They know, in fact, on the battlefield, the poor guy who's fit and lean and sunburned, as Plato puts it, is a far better soldier than these fat slobs who've dragged themselves out of bed onto the battlefield. So the whole thing gets undermined. The guys to lead the people are there from the fallen wealthy. And the people themselves realize these guys are there for the taking. We don't have to be pushed around by these anymore. And there's far more of us than there are of them. 
oligos, and the oligos part is their downfall. Oligos means few. There's only, there's only ever a few of them. And funny enough, the interesting thing is in these situations, controlling the army ultimately doesn't do you any good because the army are just ordinary paid soldiers and eventually they say, why are we fighting for these guys? What kind of person? Democratic person is the basis of the whole thing. Now, this is what he's like. He lives from day to day, indulging the appetite of the hour. Sometimes he's lapped in drink, then he becomes a water drinker, and he tries to get thin. Then he takes a turn at gymnastics, sometimes idling and neglecting everything, then living the life of a philosopher. Next, a politician, then a warrior. He has neither law nor order, and this distracted existence, which he terms joy and freedom, continues throughout his life. That's your democratic man. How does he arise? Poor old father's to blame again. Miserly and oligarchical father who has trained him in his own habits. In other words, how to be miserly and oligarchical and hold on to the money. He is vulgar and miserly and he keeps the unnecessary desires under control. He starts to keep company with those who introduce him to the other desires. He is torn between desires, but at length the bad desires seize upon the citadel of the young man's soul, which they perceive to be void of all noble studies and pursuits. So really what happens is he sees his father accumulating money, accumulating money. He spends very, very little. Eventually somebody says to him, he points to bad company, or somebody says to him, look, your father's going to die with a whole lot of money in the bank. He's going to leave it to you. Now what are you going to do? die with a whole lot of money in the bank? What about enjoyment? What about getting out there, spend some of the money and have a good time? And he listens to that. So the father in the oligarchy, he accumulates the money but won't spend it. Here the spending starts and he spends the money because pleasure is very important to him. Appetite is now important to him. Appetite and enjoyment are very important to this chap. So it's a rebellion against the spendthrift habits of the father. He starts to spend the money. Now, it can get much worse. We need to see what the tyrant does. But that is really what produces him. It's a rebellion against his father's lifestyle, and he really puts pleasure first. Pleasure is the number one thing with him. Historical overtones. Robespierre, famous quotation. He's standing talking to someone on the street corner. He sees a mob go past, and he says, Ah, there go the people. I must follow them. I am their leader. In a democracy, the leader follows the people because what's most important in a democracy is that you're shown to be the people's friend and you are the friend of the people and you please the people at all times. That's how you stay in power in a democracy. The way Plato describes it is he says, ruling in a democracy is like trying to please a monster, a big beast and you watch the monster and you have to keep the monster happy at all costs. If you don't, and if you displease the monster, he'll eat you. And it's just like that in a democracy. If you want to rule, you've got to keep the people happy. The people are the big beast and you've got to keep them happy. And as soon as you do anything that displeases them, that's it, they're not in power anymore. Simple as that. There's another aspect of it which Plato would have seen firsthand and Socrates would have seen firsthand. It's when it comes to decision making, they're not great. There's a story here, there's a place called Mytilene, which is on the island of Lesbos, and it rebelled against Athenian power in 427 BC. So the Athenians, in true democratic fashion, called a meeting of the assembly, 20,000, 30,000 people, few speeches are read out, 
They decide their rebellion on Mitalini is absolutely outrageous. They're going to put all the male citizens on Mitalini to death, and they're going to sell all the women and children into slavery. And they dispatch a ship immediately over to Mitalini, which is over near the island of Lesbos, over where that is, to enact this judgment. They all go home. That night, they sleep on it. They calm down a bit. They start thinking to themselves, you know, maybe we got a bit carried away there. Okay, it was a bit of a rebellion, but we've had rebellions before. But we can deal with it in other ways. Another emergency meeting of the assembly is called. A few more speeches are made, this time a bit more conciliatory. They decide to reverse the decision. Another ship has to be launched with instructions to row as fast as possible. They go tearing off after them, and the description which has come down to us is that the second ship arrived just as the fellows on the first ship were reading out the terrible, terrible judgment which had been pronounced by the assembly, and they were just in time to revoke it. Plato would love this. He said, this is typical democracy. Instead of deliberating and making the best decision, they fly into action because today we think this, and then tomorrow they're thinking, oh God, we shouldn't have done that, and Everything's determined, as he puts it, with the person. It's the appetite of the moment that rules. There's no deliberation, there's no consideration, there's no question of bringing forward some sound advisors who, who can best advise us what to do in this situation. No, the people will decide. And that was in and through Athenian life, in their law courts and everything. Oh yeah, that's the political arbitrage. Tyranny, the last and the worst. What happens with the tyranny is the excess of liberty in the democracy passes into excess of slavery in the tyranny. Basically, really what happens is democracy eventually gets almost anarchic. It's almost totally lawless. And so it's very much set up for some one person to come in and impose order. Now, he has a few pretexts and all that, but that's basically how the thing happens. He will always have a private army, which he calls his bodyguard. He will always be stirring up war so that the people will require a leader. So if you ever see that going on, watch out. People are impoverished by taxes and devoted, therefore, to daily wants and are unable to conspire against him. That's what he does. Gets into power to restore order. Basically another friend of the people. And then he uses war as a pretext to make them always want a strong leader. And he imposes massively heavy taxes so that they're so poor, they have no time to think about politics or conspiracies against their tyrant. How is it formed? It grows out of the democracy. Almost everything there is managed by the drones. They do not allow a word to be said by the other side. The people are the most numerous class, but the wealthy are squeezed by the drones, and they fight back and seem to be the enemy of the people. The tyrant always appears as the protector of the people. Having the mob at his disposal, he is not restricted in shedding the blood of kinsmen, and he uses the courts to great effect. So just to talk through that a bit, we have these two states, if you like. In the democracy now, the poor are on top and are starting to dominate, but the wealthy section is still there. And they tend to kick back against the domination by the poor. And it's a great pretext then for the tyrant to come in and say, I'm the friend of the people. I can defend you against the machinations of these powerful, sinister forces of wealth who are trying to restore their own power and trying to take power away from the people. And he becomes a champion of the people's rights. He establishes himself as their sole leader and comes to power in that way. He uses the mob and he uses the courts. 
That's how they work. Kind of person, which is the key to the whole thing. You have a tyranny only because you've got people like this. And they're all like this, not just the tyrant. Lust is the lord of the house within him and orders all the concerns of his soul. Every day and every night, new offshoots of desire grow up and their demands are many. Lust is his tyrant and lives in him in complete anarchy and lawlessness. He is drawn into a perfectly lawless life, which his seducers call perfect liberty. So this is pleasure and the satisfaction of desires at all costs, even if you're to break every law that's known to humanity. That's the sort of person that constitutes a tyranny. How does he arise? Father again, I'm afraid. The democratic man, he was drawn away from the life his father intended. The son is brought up in turn in the democratic way of life of his father and is drawn by his father to moderate indulgence in pleasure. But by bad company he is drawn into lawlessness and lust to implant a master passion in him like a monstrous winged drone. All temperance is killed off and he becomes drunken, lustful and passionate. And basically the logic here is very, very simple, extremely simple. He sees that his father is satisfying some few desires, some moderate desires. But people eventually say to him, look, you satisfy a few desires, you're a little bit happy. Does it not follow that if you satisfy twice as many desires, you'll be twice as happy? And if you satisfy desires like they're going out of style, you'll be the happiest man on earth. So just go for it. Satisfy any desire that comes into your head. And all this nonsense about laws, restraint, temperance, justice, they're just fables made up to keep you under control. Don't let them control you. Live like there's no tomorrow. Just satisfy any desires and let nothing get in your way. There you have this tyrannical man. And he outdoes his father by far in, in terms of satisfying desires and being utterly unrestrained. For an example, funny enough, although Augustus Caesar, the nephew of Julius Caesar, I sort of tended to have a high regard for him. Gibbon calls Augustus a crafty tyrant. Augustus created the Praetorian Guard as his bodyguard. That Praetorian Guard dogged the Roman Empire for 200 years until Constantine had them all exterminated. He styled himself the protector of the people. That's what Augustus called himself. Other example we discussed earlier is the famous Commodus. Son of Marcus Aurelius, very strange thing, that one of the worst tyrants was born to one of the greatest Roman emperors. Commodus, quite a bit that's in that movie, Gladiator, about him is true. He did go into the gladiatorial ring. He had a massive thirst for blood. He had statues erected to himself, and on it, he boasted of the number of people he had killed. Statues put up and on the basis to Commodus, who killed so many thousand men. That's the sort of person that he was. And very strangely, he was the son of Marcus Aurelius, one of their greatest emperors. So that's the historical overtone. So they're the five systems. I've gone through them pretty quick, but it's taken ages. So I think it'll be good to break there. I'll give you the handout and you can have a look at it. And we come back then and we see what we make of it. What does it suggest in terms of looking around the world today? Do you see overtones of it? or what else you want to clarify or ask about it. So, is that okay? So I'll give you handouts.
will come back if you'd like to make any comments on what you've heard or indicate what you think its applicability to the present day might be. We can take some discussion on that. There's someone there who wants to say something. So if you can just take that microphone and away you go. I just want to be clear on a point here on oligarchy. You were saying that accumulation of gold and so on in this particular mode and also there was inhibition against spending, you know, it was hoarding of gold. Yes, they do, yeah. But yet, in the paragraph two there it says, they invent new modes of expenditure. Yeah. Now that seems to be incompatible, I can't follow that. Yeah. And he doesn't elaborate it very much, but he does say that. And as I would understand it, even, for example, in Sparta, even to allow people to spend gold and silver would have required legislation. Their coins were not of gold and silver, um, and its possession was frowned upon. So, as I say, he doesn't go into a huge, huge amount of detail about it, but in order to allow the, the limited use and transaction in the gold and silver, they would have had to change the rules in relation to expenditure. As I said, there's an economic thread runs through this, and I just pick up on one thing about it. Do you remember in the previous one, the Timocracy, they suddenly allow private ownership of land, now, that's a really significant step because that basically means you're moving to a stage where you can end up with people who have no land because someone can buy it all up. It also means you can trade in land. So, for example, if you want to buy land, you must pay for it in gold and silver. I could see them having to change the laws of the country to allow buying and selling of land and to allow gold and silver to be used for it as well. To back that up, you also need to be able to register title to land. Um, so uh, that whole concept of who owns the land, how much of it do they own, and what sort of security do they have in that ownership, all gets crystallized much more in the oligarchy. As I say, he doesn't spell it out, but that thread runs through it by implication. An economic thread, you end up sometimes having to guess at it, but they're the sort of things that strike me that they would have had to do as the oligarchy solidifies and you really end up with people who do a lot of trading, a lot of buying and selling and a lot of transactions which are associated with accumulation of wealth and the security that goes with it. Law of contract as well. And he's very wary of the law of contract. In fact, Plato says, firstly, in an oligarchy, private contracts will be enforceable in law. But he points out you don't have to have that rule. So for example, this is a very oligarchic thing. If I lend you a thousand pounds. We can draw up a legally binding agreement before us and if you don't repay me that money I can come after you and I can get you into court and I can get that money. I can get your property and you could end up in jail if you don't cooperate. Plato says listen you don't have to make private contracts enforceable in law. The law could say that's a private contract between you two. It's a gentleman's agreement. He didn't honor it. It's your problem. The courts won't hear your case. But the oligarchs don't go that way. They go the way of making private contracts enforceable in law, and it's a very significant step. It seems to imply that in the timocracy, if we had done that, the previous form of government, if you, uh, you, I lent you the £1,000, you said, um, I'm sorry, I can't repay you. That's my loss. I shouldn't have trusted you. So I just get a sense the whole legislative setup has to change, but he doesn't elaborate it any more than pretty well what I said there. So I don't know if that helps. That's my sense of it.
what sort of system would you say Ireland is or is moving towards? <laughs> That's quite a hard question. I'd be very interested as well in what other people think of it. All right? And I'll tell you what I think first. It's not a pure democracy. It is a democracy mixed with oligarchy. That's what it is. Certainly, wealth and power go together in Ireland. Funny enough, we do look up to rich people. It varies from person to person, but wealth and respect go together. We do look down on poor people. That's a very oligarchic thing. Yet we do insist on having our say. Doyle is not a hugely democratic institution, but yet you do get the voice of the people spoken in the Doyle. And one other huge organ of democratic voice is always what people would term the gutter press. And it's the oligarchs who call it that, by the way. So you're betraying your background. <laughs> and the oligarchs always want to control it, by the way. Oligarchs always want to control the media and control the press. The wealthy like to get control of that because then you control the sort of thing that's been said. It's great power. But the gutter press and their ability actually to bring down Ireland football managers and all that sort of thing is always a sign of a democratic force at work. So in my opinion, there are two main forces of oligarchy and democracy. And in most of what you'd call the free world, where there are free economies, it's different balances of those. I would say America is also oligarchy and democracy, but the oligarchic element is much stronger. The power of wealth in the United States is much stronger. And the divide between the two nations in America is much stronger. That, that polarity of rich and poor, of the dispossessed underclass, is much more marked in the United States. Padre Osunovan was just saying to me there at the break, he lived for some time in Jamaica. And again, in, in Jamaica, that's very oligarchic, very little democracy. You just have the wealthy who own all the wealth and who run the country. And then you have the others who have a right to live on the island. You know, that's about it. So, but as I said, I'd be interested in what other people have to say about Ireland today and how it fits into this sort of scheme. Thank you. Thank you. What else? Gentleman here. Regarding aristocracy, I see there's an emphasis on good education as being one of the requirements. Yeah. Good education would seem to be as much a necessity for democracy as for aristocracy. And regarding our own situation, as we become better educated, how is it that our standards seem to worsen? Right. Another thread that runs through this is education. A huge theme of the Republic from start to finish is education. All ten books, it's in and through it, and in some books it's the sole topic. The decline in education he really puts forward as one of the reasons why you move from aristocracy down to democracy. And Plato places huge emphasis and value on education. And in fact, he says, if you want to move back from any form of government back to the ideal system, you can do so through education. And what you say is right, democracy will still be a better democracy if 
education is better. But then you've got the next question, which is what kind of education are you providing? And here is where Plato would differ from probably the prevailing philosophy of education in the market today, which is education of what he would term a purely commercial nature, an education which is not aimed at making people really and truly better. And for Plato, that was the only object of education. And so he would say, with the greatest respect to people who've done business studies, if you teach people business studies, you're not really making them better people. You're turning out people who know business studies. What he wants is people who have got wisdom, justice, temperance, and courage. The real purpose of education is to give people wisdom, justice, temperance, and courage. When they get those, they won't have wealth as their god because they realize that there are more important things than wealth. And properly educated, they'll they realize that. And then you have the scope for your system of government to refine, and you also have the scope for somebody to offer himself as leader, himself or herself as leader, who isn't in the standard mold, because the people are trained and educated to appreciate that person. So in the democracy, really the key is you have to be the people's friend. In a pure democracy, you have to be the people's friend. But if you start to educate those people, they've got a degree of true education, then it's possible for somebody to come forward and offer real leadership to those people and lead them in a direction which might be a bit more painful, but which is ultimately for the better good of the whole state. And education absolutely is the key in any of them. But Plato's real emphasis would be, what kind of education? What are you calling education? That's his big emphasis. And he's pretty scathing of things like what he calls shopkeepers' arithmetic and all that sort of thing. Not teaching people about number, but teaching them shopkeepers' arithmetic. So that's about the best I can do in answer to your question. Very good question. Thank you very much. What else? If you pass that microphone behind you. There seems to be a bit of a problem then, because if you're saying that we want to change, obviously we're in the oligarchical and we're in the de democratic, yeah. and we want to be aristocratic, because we want to have the best person to rule. Mm -hmm. But if this best person does arise, because the people choose the ruler, then we obviously wouldn't appreciate or see that this person was the best. Correct. And you're saying that the way out of this is to educate the people. Correct. So you have to have the entire people agreeing with this before the aristocrat can come into power. Yes. There's two possibilities here. I gave the same lecture last night, and someone came up with a very clever second option on this. But ideally, what you do is, if you have democratic people, people who basically put pleasure as the highest good, and any inconvenience as utterly unacceptable. You've got democratic people, and they'll only accept as their rulers people who are going to please them. And if a ruler displeases them, that ruler will not be a ruler for long. The key question with any of these systems of government is you look at the kind of people, the democratic types, the, the military types, and you ask them, who would you accept as a leader? What kind of person would you accept as a leader? And so the military types, they go for the soldier. The democratic types, they want the guy who 
basically gives into them. Basically gives into them. And the, the oligarchs, they want the rich man. But the key question is, who would you accept as leader? And typically, by and large, people give the wrong answer. You know, they, they're choosing wrong leaders. And they're choosing them because of their own disposition, the way they've been brought up and educated and conditioned. And so if you can change that, if you can refine the system of education, uh, system of education, I've, I've got to try and get away from that. Because it's not just educators who are involved in education. You saw the role of fathers there mentioned in passing. But ultimately, you want to affect change within the being of people, however you do it. Change within their inner being. There is an alternative, though, which is this. It can happen in any of these that a truly inspirational aristocrat arrives on the scene who knows what's best, who can command the respect of the people and who can inspire them and basically educate them to the fact that this is the best way. I'm not going to do what pleases you. I'm not going to pander to your desires. But I have a vision. I see a way forward. And if you follow me, we will move forward together and it will be for the better good of us all. And they may follow that. And that's one hope. Somebody just mentioned that last night. I hadn't quite thought of it. But that's where the real leadership comes in, the, the scope for real leadership. And ultimately, he's an educator as well. Pericles, to an extent, did that in Athens. And from his speeches, we, we don't know exactly what he said in those speeches, but the versions which come down to us through Thucydides, he was educating the Athenians through his speeches, educating them to have pride in their own system, have pride in their own country and have pride in their own achievements. And there was a predecessor of his, a fellow called Themistocles. When the Athenians found silver in the mines at Laurion, suddenly they had fallen into huge wealth. And the question was, what could they do with it? The first thing that came into their mind was, we'll cut taxes. We'll use the revenue from the silver mines to cut taxes. Themistocles said, no, don't do that. Now, obviously, that's the easy way. To put to the vote of the ordinary people, they say, oh, I've got to cut the taxes. But Themistocles said, no, invest in your navy. We're a maritime nation. We are very precariously situated, and our defense is at risk. Invest in ships. And so they did. They took Themistocles' advice, however he persuaded them to do it, and they voted against a tax cut for themselves in a, in a very democratic state. And within the lifetime of Thucydides, got invaded by the Persians, and the navy saved them. They hadn't had a navy, they were finished. Their greatest victory over the Persians was at the Battle of Salamis, and it was a naval victory. So that's the sort of thing that can happen. So the great leaders can arrive, and you can be very fortunate for that to happen. But ultimately, Plato would say, you know, if you want to find out, you want to ask yourself, why is this country the way it is? You've got to look into yourself. That's where you'll find the answer. The qualities that are in there are the explanation as to why your city-state, as he would call it, is the way it is. So, there it is. Okay. First of all, may I say thank you for a fascinating lecture. I just wonder, is there a, a, an inevitability about the whole thing, since the fathers are responsible for how the <laughs> sons uh, 
uh, turn out. We used to be able to blame the mothers and the government. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, is there an, an inevitability and a cycle in the whole thing, except mm. for when the odd good man comes along and changes, breaks that cycle? Right. Well, he never says it's inevitable. He just says that th th this will be the natural rundown if you leave things to their own devices. He, but he never says it's inevitable. He just says, here's, here's five forms, and here's how they stand with respect to one another, and here's how they follow from one another. He's very clear that with education, it can turn back. True education producing the true virtues. And ultimately, he brings the thing home through the emphasis he places on the individual. So if you say there's an inevitability about it, ultimately what you're saying is, I am as I am, and I can never change. And I can never improve. And I'd never be happy to say that. So I wouldn't like to say it's inevitable. I'd never say it's inevitable, because I'd never make that statement. RTE love doing these Vox Pop things where they walk around with one of those microphones in the street and shove them into people's faces and ask them questions. I think if you say that to people, you know, do you agree with the statement that you are as you are and you can never change or improve? People will say, I think, no, no, no. I'm not going to buy that. Too fatalistic. So, for that reason, I wouldn't be fatalistic. As I said, history is not my subject. So, this is all sort of vague stuff in the back of my mind. <laughs> Nations have come back from terrible situations. The situation of Europe at the time of the decline of the Roman Empire was horrific. And in fact, after the Goths took over and after the empire had finally collapsed, the situation in Italy was one of almost total lawlessness. And yet it did pick up. Now, a huge factor there was the Christian church. Huge factor there. But that's all part of education, because education for Plato isn't, as he said, just about shopkeepers' arithmetic. It's about true values and spiritual values. And you can say the spread of, of Christianity, you wouldn't normally say it was an educative process. But the way Plato talks about education, of developing the virtues and the true human qualities, including love of your neighbor, Ultimately, for Plato, is education. We call that education. People still mightn't be able to read or write, but they're far better off than the lawless hordes who were wandering around Europe in the 5th century stealing each other's corn. So, could you say which begets which? Is it the people get the government they deserve, or is it that crises arise, and out of these crises come people like... Hitler and Churchill, who rise to the occasion and break that cycle? Well, the first point that people get the government they deserve, which is a bit of a cliche, but yet it has a platonic basis. The way Plato puts it is most of the time it is like that. If, if you want to affect real change and permanent and lasting change, change the people. If you don't change the people, a good ruler might pop up and he'd be there for a short period of time. Then he's gone, and they're back to their own devices. That's what happened in the Roman Empire. They had Marcus Aurelius. Um, they had um, sorry, Antoninus Pius. They had Marcus Aurelius. They had Hadrian before that, who wasn't a bad sort. After that, though, they had Commodus. And they let Commodus rule. You know? they, they, they didn't have to let that happen. But 
they hadn't got the system within themselves to spot a good ruler from a bad ruler. They got lucky for a while. And Hadrian set that up. They got lucky for a while. Then it collapsed. And in fact, Gibbon says, the real decline of the Roman Empire starts with the death of Marcus Aurelius. And in fact, some people say the end of the Roman Empire is the death of Marcus Aurelius. Thereafter, it's over. So they got lucky. And that, that was it. The guys, like Hitler, in terms of German history, about which, again, I'm pretty ignorant, you might be able to regard him as a bit of an, an aberration. Solzhenitsyn on Stalin is very interesting. There was the Stalinist project he was, he was writing about, but he talks about the start of the Stalinist purges in Russia and in Moscow, where people would be taken at night and they'd vanish and they were gone. There was a bit, a bit of a show trial, or maybe not even a show trial. They just would vanish. And these thugs were going around, and people saw them. They knew who they were. The car would be parked outside. He says all this. He says, there's a guy parked outside in a car. There's two others upstairs getting this guy and apprehending him. Why is everyone peering out through cracks in their doors and windows and letting them do this? Why are they doing it? And he says, we simply did not love freedom enough. That's what Solzhenitsyn says about his own people in the Stalinist era. He says, we simply did not love freedom enough. And he says, we deserved everything we got. So, you can say Stalin was an awful fellow and he did awful things to the Russian people. That's true. But the way Solzhenitsyn comes at it is similar to the way Plato would come at it. What the hell were the Russian people doing? They outnumbered him. They outnumbered his army. They outnumbered. What were they up to? There, and a lady there as well. Um, just to lead on from that, where would the, uh, an ideal socialist country come in that? Like the idealism of socialism, maybe going back to Marxist idealism, whether it's been lived I, at all. For, for the ideal socialism, I'd go back to Plato. which is the only ideal of it which I can understand. Plato said, in the aristocracy, there's no private property, people have everything in common. Now, he gets very carried away in the Republic, and he said wives and children are in common, but I'm not getting into that. <laughs> now, again and again through the dialogues, he uses this old, it was a saying in ancient Greece, friends have all things in common. And he uses that over and over. But the way I hear it with Plato is he doesn't try to enforce the sharing. And I think a problem with socialist systems and communist systems is they try to make people share when in their hearts is the love of the private property. So you're, you're making someone share their field and their farm when really deep down inside themselves they desperately want to own it. So you're imposing a system which in their hearts people are always fighting against. Now what Plato would, wanted to do was he wanted to change people's hearts so that that possessiveness and that insecurity which is behind it went away and then they would share then you don't have to worry about the system it will follow and that is what I would term the true communism the true community of property where the possessiveness and in particularly the insecurity that's behind it is just eliminated from people's hearts and so they naturally will share so and you can see the streak of insecurity running through that system. You know, that oligarchic fellow has seen his father lose everything. His father was a man of honor, but he lost everything. Now, what the oligarch says is, I'm going to 
gain wealth and I'm going to hold on to it and I'm going to put wealth first and there's going to be no messing around with destitution anymore. So the bottom line might just be an education. Education. You know, education in the right way. True education would eliminate education. that insecurity and eliminate mm. that greed. Mm. But even behind the greed is that strange insecurity, you know, that I, I won't have enough. I won't have enough. So, best I can the man behind you there. Thank you. Just a, a question. If aristocracy is the kind of purest form and the best form, the highest form of government, then presumably aristocratic government would have the proper type of education in place. Yes. And having that in place, it would be a self-sustaining system. So what is the trigger? Is it human nature, a flaw in human nature that makes us dissatisfied even with what is, appears yeah. to be acceptable and good? Yeah. It's one of the most obscure questions in the Republic. He does say that these perfect things, perfect systems, actually won't last forever. And he does say it's in the nature of this man, universe of human beings, that it will tend to run down. He talks about this children being born out of season. Really odd passage. I made a few jokes about it, but it's in there. And I think what he's hinting at is really just in very simple terms, just a natural tendency for man-made institutions and anything human to somehow or other degenerate. And because of it, the first thing that happens is they don't place as high a value on education as before. That's the crack. And from that crack, the whole thing begins to crumble. And so it's open then to somebody in the next form of government to say, honor and ambition are more important than wisdom. Whereas Plato would always say, listen, honor and ambition that's not governed by wisdom can be foolish and cruel. Even courage that's not governed by wisdom ends up just being foolhardy. Everything should be governed by wisdom. So he puts it down and said that strange beginning, which he says is almost in the nature of things, and then this little crack where the value placed on education is just that little bit less than it should be. And that's the explanation which he gives in that. Book 8 of the Republic, by the way, is a good read. <laughs> I enjoy reading through it. I remember reading through it years and years and years ago. And what kept me going was just what's going to happen next. You can read through it just like a novel. What's going to happen next? The lady here, if she can have that mic. I just want to ask you, if it's the people of a state to reflect their government, then the people can change that government. I just want to ask your opinion. Can you explain then why a vast number of young people in Irish society do not wish to use their vote or are uninterested in politics? Yeah. <sighs> An aspect of not having a pure democracy is that you will always get significant numbers of people who turn off from politics. The age profile can change. You'll also find that there's an economic profile goes with that as well. You, you can look at the economic strata and you'll find that as people get poorer, they're less inclined to vote. So poorer and younger at the moment, you probably find if you survey it, are less inclined to vote. I was looking today at, there's a website, I don't know if you remember Gary Hart, he ran for president of the United States quite a while ago. I forget whether he was a candidate for nomination or what he was. He ran into a, 
a sex scandal blew up in his face. But he's quite an idealistic guy. He has a website, and you can have a read of it. I heard an interview with him during the week, and he said on the interview, he said, um, when I was running for president, he said, the first people to ring me up and start approaching me were the lobby groups, the industrial lobby groups. Now, they're the oligarchs. They're the wealthy people who want to make sure they're positioned well with Hart if he gets into office. And he said, I wouldn't talk to them. He said, I wouldn't talk to the lobby groups at all. And he said, from then on, actually, my chances of being president were over. Point number one. In this website today, though, he says, listen, now, Republicans and Democrats in the States, they're both essentially oligarchic, but the Democrats would regard themselves as more democratic. And the Republicans would regard themselves, as they, they typically do represent the, the wealthy interests. And Hart says on this website, coming back to your point, he says, you know something, he says, the Republicans don't want you to vote. They actually don't want you to vote. The oligarchs don't want a lot of rabble coming out and voting, because they can vote for anybody. So there's quite a vested interest as well among the oligarchic element in people not voting. It suits them down to the ground. And they know that it, as that process goes on and on and on and on, it's basically going to be the wealthier types, the well-heeled types, the people who feel they have more of a stake in the society who will vote. And it moves it more and more in their direction. So it, it's very unfortunate, really, because... Okay, neither democracy nor oligarchy are ideal, but that balance is still important and significant. And actually for us, because of our nature, democracy is important. And it will be quite painful for us if it moves too much towards that oligarchic system and control entirely by the wealthy. It will actually be quite painful for us. It would be a terrible thing if it happened. But it's actually part of that play of oligarchy uh, versus democracy and the tendency of certain parts of democracy just to lose interest. It's quite intelligent copying on to the fact that this is not a pure democracy and a lot of the big serious decisions are actually not been made based on what the people want. They've been made by other factors and they do cop on to that. That's the background too but it's a pity that people do give in to it. You know it is a great service to encourage people to vote, to educate them in relation to the political process and to educate them, particularly based on a historical span of things, the way states can change and nations can change over maybe a very considerable period of time, but they can change and can be changed for the better. So, thank you. Very long answer, wasn't it? So, anything further? Not the back there. He writes about, in his latest book called The Culture of Contentment that we'll all end up voting by our wallets and that less and less, exactly as you say, of the less well-off will actually bother to vote. So you end up total oligarchy. We're heading that way, aren't we, in this country already? It's getting um, pretty close. It, it, it could, yeah. Now, if it happens, I'm going to go back to Plato for a sec. If it happens... It's because of the value we place on wealth, if it happens. And Plato would say, you've no one but yourself to blame. It's because of the value you're placing on wealth. And a lot of people would comment in Ireland today, you know, I mean, wealth has become more important to us. If people were quoting, in fact, De Valera's Dancing at the Crossroads speech, was it 60 years old, I think, a week or so ago. That's not the vision that we went with. And people do joke about that speech now.
And we joke about the speech for well, a couple of reasons. It, it, the language is a bit archaic. But also, we place huge value on wealth. And ultimately, that's the way you go. I mean, you move back to, towards oligarchic. What you tend to want is, when you place a lot of value on wealth, you'll want power to be in the hands of people who have a vested interest and who will basically look after the securing of the national wealth. Distribution is a different thing, securing of the national wealth. That's what the people will want, and so they'll allow it to happen. And as it happens, more and more and more, you alienate the people who have very little stake in the nation. And unfortunately, though, you polarize the nation at the same time because you're accentuating that divide, the two nations that he talks about, the two countries that he talks about, rich on one side, poor on the other, regarding one another with huge suspicion and regarding one another as enemies. So it could go that way, but Plato would say to you, well then, look to your values. Look to your values. And the, the idea of educators, I mean, I, just very briefly on that, the idea of educators being people who are in universities or who are teaching or something like that, I question the validity of that. I mean, every person in this room is an educator by what they say and by what they do. So we're all educators. And so if you want to increase the true education in the nation, you do it by what you say and you do it by what you do. But he, he does have a point and there is that danger. I acknowledge it. Thank you. No, it just helps me to reflect on the fact that everything, it's easier to put everything outside of ourselves, like yes. talking about the government. Yes, yes, and yes. So when it comes back to me, the only thing I can do is look at the tyrant in me, the democrat in me. That's right. So it all actually right. comes back to me. It does, absolutely. It's like when you talked about greed and stuff earlier, saying, yeah, well, when it comes right down to it, do I want to give up my house and live by the campfire? Yes. The other thing someone said earlier is when we know the way we live, it's like we don't know the other way. Yes. So yes. sometimes we don't know what we're missing either. That's true. So yeah. we, we're brought up in a particular system and it's difficult to think beyond that. Even what democracy means to us when we use the word and the way Plato describes it there is different. And also the way he describes it there and the way it was meant to the Athenians is different as well. So that would be a very controversial work even at its time. Because they said democracy, described it in glowing terms. For them, democracy was really, really wonderful. And so it was very controversial for Socrates, as it turns out, to say there are downsides to this democracy thing, you know. The analogy he always gave was the analogy of a ship. Like used it earlier, but I mean, you're in a democracy. We're at sea. We're lost. We haven't got a clue where we are. So what do we do? Do we say, okay, there's 10 or 12 of us here. So the right thing to do is that we agree among ourselves by a majority on a course of action. Whatever the majority decide, that's what we're going to do. And I don't want any of your experts or any of your know-alls trying to dominate things. We're just going to go with the majority. Or do we say, does anyone here know anything about sailing? And one guy says, yeah, I do. Okay, you sort this out. And he says, I mean, are you really going to go with a majority vote in that situation? If you want to dig a foundation for a house, I mean, do you get all your neighbours together and, and decide how it's to be done? Or do you get someone in who knows about 
digging foundations for a house. How deep should it be? Let's put it to the vote. <laughs> you end up digging to the centre of the earth. <laughs> so that he laughs at that. And the thing that's said about the philosophy of Plato and Socrates was, instead of it just being idle philosophic speculation, he started to point back to the individual and he started making philosophy a practical thing for people and a way in which they could actually understand themselves. Where he goes with this is he says, okay, here's what rules in the state. Here's how the state is ruled. But how are you ruled? Are you ruled by reason? Are you ruled by passion? Are you ruled by lust? Are you ruled by greed? How are you ruled? And ultimately, he says, the answer to that question, how are you ruled, is what determines how the state is ruled, not the other way around. So that's what you say is spot on. It always makes you do this self-examination thing. And, and people hated him for that, really. I mean, they, in the end, they hated him for that. Sometimes vehemently and sometimes just with shaking their heads with amusement. There's one dialogue called the Laches, and they're talking about courage. And there's two generals there. One of them's called Laches. That's what it's named after. And they're talking about how they should educate their sons and whether they should teach them the art of fighting in armor, which is a great topic of interest for these generals. They're there for a few minutes, and eventually Socrates is asking questions about themselves. And one of them says, I knew this would happen. Every time we start talking to Socrates, you end up talking about yourself. <laughs> And that's what always does. points back to you. Ultimately, he's saying that's the root of the problem. <laughs> also, it's the solution. He says you can sort out all of these problems with government in one step, uh, which is put the philosopher king back in power. Now, at the level of government, you think that doesn't make enough of us. How is that practical for us? I mean, if we're going to go around and look for a philosopher king and try and get him into power tomorrow. It's a joke. But you think of yourself, is it possible for you to say, I will be ruled by reason and truth? That's what he really means. If you're prepared to take that step, I'll be ruled by reason and truth. Okay, happy to leave it at that? Okay, so good to talk to you. Thank you.